I'm continuing with what I think has been such a fantastic series so far um, on the awesome God that we serve. I think Steve and Pete have done a great job of introducing us, and it's wonderful just to spend some time focusing on particular aspects of God. But just imagine, we have just had a wonderful time in God's presence. Just imagine if we had to offer a sacrifice each time we wanted to draw close to him. I think that God's holiness was very much more in your face in Old Testament times, wasn't it? There was a sacrifice that had to be made in order for people um, to approach God. And so sometimes I wonder whether we lose that wonder, whether we take God's holiness for granted because we can come straight into his presence. I just want you to consider that as we move through what I'm going to speak about. This morning, I'm going to be covering three main points. The basic fact that our God is a holy God, that he's incredible, majestic, and that should inspire awe inside of us, shouldn't it? Secondly, the fact that that God who is the embodiment of holiness chose to actively make a way to commune with people. And then finally, the fact that God calls us to be a holy, set-apart people. What does that mean, and how do we do that? Now, Steve asked me to preach on this subject because he knows that I spent quite a lot of time at the end of last year studying um, the whole area of holiness because I wrote a set of Bible study notes. And CWR were very generous with their offer of giving anybody who wanted a year's free subscription to any of their Bible reading notes as a thank you for us piloting their Paraclesis course. So I know that there are some women sat in this room today who are halfway through my Bible reading notes on holiness because they've been published for this May. So I was going to start this morning by apologizing that you're going to have to sit through some material that you've already read about. And then I thought, no, actually, we can't get enough of reminding ourselves about different aspects of God's awesomeness, can we? So actually, those of you who've got the notes, it's a fantastic little giveaway you've got um, as a backup to my preach, and that you'll be going through it in even more detail in the next couple of weeks. So as I've said, I really don't think we, we should be taking the holiness of God for granted. And I just want to read out a quote from R.C. Sproul. He goes so far to say that the holiness of God is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with. It's basic to our whole understanding of God and of Christianity. Do you think of God's holiness like that? Just bearing that in mind, let's turn to Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. It's going to come up there, but it's great if you've got your Bible to turn to it. So, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorstops and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. 
and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongues from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. This passage, I think, is just packed full of images of God's holiness. And it's describing a vision of God seated on his throne that Isaiah was given at the time that he was being commissioned to become God's prophet. It was also given at a time where spiritual and moral standards were at an all-time low. Does that sound familiar to you? I think we need this type of arresting vision of God's holiness for ourselves not to be dulled by the spiritual decline that's going on in the culture around us today. I just want to pick out a few things that really speak to me about God's holiness in this passage. And I'm always fascinated by the picture of God's train filling the temple. And we should have a picture coming up. This is to help you imagine it. I think there's so many things, and I know Pete was saying it last week, how do you get your head around that? And there are so many things in descriptions of God that we think, how do we quite comprehend that? And his train filling the temple is one of those. This is actually a picture, um, an attempt at Guinness Book of World Records of the longest train on a bridal gown. Actually, the, the, one, the current world holder, their train is two and a half miles long. I mean, how can you move in that? But anyway, I really like this picture because it shows the train absolutely covering this magnificent entrance to this building. And yet that must be a poor reflection of what God's train is like filling the whole temple. It just speaks to me of opulence and exuberance. So we have God there sitting on his train... But then we have uh, these seraphim above him. We're told they're six-winged creatures, but even though they were heavenly supernatural beings, we're told that they had to cover their eyes in the presence of a holy God. Now, the description we've just read in Isaiah reminds me of the description that we find in Revelation as well, which Rob quoted from earlier in the worship. This was a vision of the throne room that was given to John. And there are a lot of echoes, similarities between the two. There's a lot about the sense of majesty and awesomeness of God. And we have those heavenly creatures there saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the two occasions are actually separated by about 800 years, but they're saying exactly the same thing. And I imagine they are still in heaven saying, holy, holy, holy. That word holy in Hebrew, kwadosh, means separate or set apart. And it was their way of describing the otherness that we can't quite describe of God. The repetition of the word shows that it's something that's important that they want us to take notice of. And in Hebrew, a triple repetition means an absolute. So Isaiah is here saying God is absolutely holy. Now Eugene Peterson, in a commentary on Isaiah, says... The characteristic name for God in the book of Isaiah is the holy. Holiness is the most attractive quality, the most intensive experience we ever get of sheer life. Authentic, first-hand living, 
Not life looked at and enjoyed from a distance. This is the bit I love. Holiness is a furnace that transforms the men and women who enter it. God's holiness transforms us. And I think we can see that transformation power at work in Isaiah. His response to the vision that he gets is quite striking, isn't it? By coming face to face with God, he instantly recognizes his spiritual dirtiness. He knows that there's no way that he can measure up before a holy God, so he cries out, woe is me. He knew he was sinful and that those around him were too. And I think that's actually something that we can easily forget to think about. We have our comforting worship songs that talk about God as our Father, that he draws us close to us. And he is our Father. I think it was great how Steve pointed out in the first week that we need that intimacy with God. He longs for that intimacy with us, but we also need the awe. And they're not fighting against each other. We need to have them in balance together. So yes, he is our Father, but it also happens to be the perfect representation of holiness. And we mustn't ever take that for granted. Again, as Steve mentioned at the start of the series, John, who had uh, the vision in Revelation, had probably known Jesus better than anybody else. And we have that image in the Last Supper. How comfortable was he with Jesus? He's lying on his chest. And yet, what was his response when he saw the risen conquering Jesus in his throne room in Revelation, he falls at his feet as though dead. Without that vision, I think he would have remained content with familiarity with Jesus. He needed to see him reigning on high in the throne room to have a complete picture of who Jesus is. And we too need that vision of God's holiness if we're not to slip into what could be called idolatry. Worshipping God for less than who he truly is. We can have a little comfortable, sanitised version of him. I, I like God being my comforter. I like him in this little box here where he doesn't really challenge me very much. Actually, we're not worshipping God. We're worshipping God, a God that we've created, that we're content with. So we should never forget that our Heavenly Father, the one who does come and comfort us, the one who is the source of everything for us, is also the one who was so powerful that he rose Jesus from the dead. And he seated him above all things. He is majestic. He is awesome. He is holy. I think without this vision of his holiness and awesomeness, we can also sometimes come away from reading some of those more difficult passages of the Bible or also come away from looking at the world around us and, and all the horrific things that we see going on. And we can be quite perplexed. We need to understand that the risen, holy Jesus is sat on the throne of heaven forever. That he is ultimately in control of history and that he will defend his holiness. We can get very upset about some of the things that are going on in the world today, but we must trust God will defend his holiness. And these kind of, this vision of his holiness helps us to put things in perspective. It gives us his bigger picture and what is incredible is that this amazing holy God we serve chose to find a way to commune with people. When we look at the Old Testament passages about sacrifices and rituals, we can find them quite perplexing, quite confusing, and if we're really honest, a little bit too gruesome. 
However, we mustn't forget that the Bible has an overall story and that we mustn't forget where the, the story of God and the Israelites comes in that overall narrative. So in Exodus, we have seen God has delivered the Israelites from the Egyptian oppression. He has parted the Red Sea through a miracle and then we find them camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then incredibly... God speaks directly to Moses. How amazing must that have been? And he tells him why he saved the nation of Israel. It's not because of anything that they've done. It's actually because he made a covenant right back with Abraham, which we can read about in Genesis. He wanted a nation for himself that would represent him on the earth, that he could teach his ways to, and ultimately would be the nation from which the saviour of the world would be born. It's incredible, isn't it? In Exodus 29, God says, they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. Let me just read that bit again. So that I might dwell among them. That's pretty astounding, isn't it? The holy God of heaven the magnificent heavenly being that we've just seen is being worshipped absolutely constantly, longs for a relationship with people. And those lists of sacrifices that I think we can sometimes find so impenetrable in Exodus and Leviticus actually remind us of two things. First and foremost, God's holiness, but also the elaborate lengths that God went to in order to bring Israel close to himself until the appointed time when his son would come to earth. As a perfect holy God, he cannot entertain sin of any kind. It literally cannot be in his presence. So the laws and the sacrifices that we find so confusing today were the way in which the people of Israel were able to get closer to God. They might seem laborious when you read through Leviticus, all the different things that he said, but just reflect next time you do read Leviticus how much detail God was prepared to include just to make absolutely sure that he could fellowship with his people that he longed to be close to. The end of Exodus sees God giving instructions to the Israelites on what was necessary for him to dwell with them. And I think it's an amazing act of humility that he, he tells them he's going to come and dwell with them in the tabernacle tent that he instructs them to erect in their campsite. Just think for that for a second and let that sit against the image of God in his temple with his train filling it with all those angels and seraphim singing holy, holy, holy. And he's telling them to the Israelites that he's going to come and live in a tent that he's asked them to erect. That's just quite mind-blowing, isn't it? And one of the Hebrew words in, that's used in Exodus to describe that tabernacle tent is mikdash, which means holy place. He also instructs the Israelites to set apart priests to work in the tabernacle. And actually the whole of Leviticus, it's well worth looking at again, is centered around God's holiness. The word holiness is actually mentioned more times there than it is anywhere else in the Bible. It's mentioned 152 times. So while Leviticus might seem to our modern eyes a little bit strange, a little bit too blood-filled, we must remember that God had actually taken up residency with the Israelites. So they needed to continually consecrate themselves. He is a holy God, and if they wanted to enjoy his favor, blood had to be shed. 
As God said to them in Leviticus 11, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. In order to approach their holy God, the people had to be cleansed from their sin. And until Jesus' death and resurrection, there was no lasting sacrifice. Now going back to Isaiah, we see how Isaiah instantly recognized his unworthiness. However, in an act that I think reflects the heart behind those sacrifices and rituals, God sends a seraphim with a burning coal. Let's read that bit again. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That last little word at the end, atoned, means made right or to make amends for. So it was making amends for his sin. And this live coal from the altar, I think, is, just gives it a foretaste of how God would ultimately save all who call on his name, the sacrifice of his son. And sometimes I like to imagine God the Father, Son, and Spirit just having great fun creating the universe. But actually, right from the beginning of time, right before he'd even created the earth, even created the first human being, the plan for our salvation was already in place. That Jesus would come to earth as a perfect representation of God in human form. And that it was through his blood sacrifice, him becoming that ultimate sacrificial lamb, that all those who believe in him and turn in repentance, which means renouncing and turning away from our sin, can become children of God. Hebrews 9 tells us that he obtained eternal redemption for us. So his sacrifice has done far more than the Israelite sacrifice ever could. They covered over the people's sin. They made them ceremonially clean so they could go into the holy place and meet with God. But Jesus' shedding of blood went far deeper than that and cleanses us from the inside out. He transforms our hearts. And actually, Jesus' sacrifice also freed us from sin's power. But we have to learn to walk in that. Jesus' sacrifice did something that we could never do for ourselves, and that is put us in right standing before God. Which moves us on to the next point, the fact that God has called each of us who belong to him to be a holy people. As we've seen, God called the Israelites, and again and again and again in the Old Testament, you can see him saying, be holy because I am holy. And he's still cause those of us who follow him to be holy today. And we've just seen that it's only through Jesus that that is possible. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For one, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And interestingly, Hebrews 10 would be a great passage for you to go through in your life groups this week if you want to. I haven't got time now to read through the whole chapter. But at the start of that chapter... It reminds us of how the Old Testament priests were on a constant cycle of repeated sacrifices. But look what it says about Jesus in comparison. 
Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. As basically saying, they are not lasting sacrifices. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's quite an abrupt ending and, and kind of a bit almost throwaway. Is that he just sat down. Why did he sit down? That's because he went through the most excruciating death for us, took all our sins on the cross, but then God raised him up and seated him next to him, and he sat down because it is done. It is finished. We don't have, we don't have to do anything else. Jesus has done it for us. It is done, so he just sat down. But there's even more for us. Even more good news. Ephesians 1 tells us, just like I was saying about the fact that I like imagining um, them creating the universe, he chose us in him before the creation of the world and this bit, to be holy and blameless in his sight. So before the creation of the world, he's chosen us to be holy. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So part of our inheritance as Christians is to be clothed in Jesus' righteousness. We had a word a few weeks back um, about the fact that we should stop putting our filthy rags back on, that God has got dazzling white garments of righteousness for each one of us. That's incredible truth, isn't it? And yet, as that word reveals to us, God is saying, stop Stop putting those filthy rags back on yourselves. Holiness is a process, but it's also a choice. We need to choose to live in the light of who we are in Christ. We need to choose to live in the light of our salvation. He's bought it at such a heavy price. And living holy lives should, in fact, be our heart response to that, that we long to do this because of what he's done for us. That Hebrews 10 passage does away with any notion that we can be made holy through our own efforts. There is nothing that we can do. Yes, when we respond fully to the amazing truth of our salvation, we should naturally be willing and want to obey and serve our God. But that's not the means of our salvation. As we've seen, Jesus has already done that through his sacrifice. It's interesting that Hebrews 10.10 describes us just because it's difficult to pronounce these and make them seem different. So 10.10 describes us as having been made holy, whereas verse 14 talks about us being made holy. That makes it clear. That's the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is the being made right with God, the simple explanation, just as if I never sinned. And sanctification is the ongoing process of being made holy. So when we accept Jesus, God looks on us and sees us as clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And yet we all know we are on a journey of discipleship every single day that's going to last until we get to heaven, isn't it? And we still need to grow in our holiness. And that's, getting that concept across, I think, is quite a challenge. And I, thought, I think it's also something that we can be in danger of downplaying a bit. Um, because we, we don't want to put people under law again. We don't want them to think, oh, I have to do something to earn 
God's favour, which isn't true. We can also think if we state this too much, we're shortchanging the wonderful message of grace. And that's not true either. I was really struck by something that Steph Liston said when he came to speak at the New Ground Academy recently. He was talking about friendship with God. And he said that he feels we can big up the message of grace without actually explaining it in full. That in fact, grace can empower me to live a life of far more sacrifice than a legalistic person ever could. That there's more to grace than meets the eye, as it were. He also spoke about the fact that there's a progression in our son or daughtership. That while doing things to please God might seem that we're back under law again, actually, if it isn't done to earn his favour, if it isn't done out of a sense of insecurity, it's just like a child doing something to please their parent. Our love as parents is unconditional. I know that actually sometimes it is a choice, depending on how well your kids behave, but... That doesn't mean we love them any less. We love them unconditionally, however they behave. But it doesn't half put a smile on our faces when we know that they are doing something motivated because they know it will please us. And that's just the same with God. I also think that we don't like to talk about discipline that much. But actually, Hebrews 12 tells us that like a parent, God disciplines us for our good. Now, I know that bit very well, but actually I was really struck by this next bit. In order that we may share in his holiness. So that verse is actually revealing God's discipline is the way in which he enables us to become holy. So we should be welcoming it. He disciplines us because he loves us. And his desire is to come close to us like a parent does with a child. And yet, sin can get in the way. We need to be holy in order to be in that close relationship with him. While I think we don't like words like discipline very much, I also have been finding out in wider Christian circles that words like sin and repentance are out of vogue these days. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I work in publishing, and mainly Christian publishing, and one of the regular jobs that I have is to update and edit a set of Bible reading notes that were first written in the 90s and the noughties when words like sin and repentance were used quite a lot. And so I keep being told, Claire, you need to change those. You can get the concepts across, but you need to change those words because people just don't like them anymore. And I find it so frustrating because I think words like sin and repentance are absolutely vital for our understanding of what it means to live our Christian lives out. And I think we can't pick and choose what words we don't like in the Bible, just like we can't pick and choose which books of the Bible. We have to take it as the whole word of God. It is totally inspired for our good. And I actually think this description of Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe reflects the dangerous side of God that we quite often choose to forget in favour of the comforting, loving father side. Ooh, said Susan. I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think that is a great description that we could use for our God as well, couldn't we? He's good. He is our king. But that doesn't mean that he's always safe. 
That does not mean that he always does things the way that we want him to or in the timing that we want. There is a dangerous side to our God that sometimes we choose to forget. For example, he is described in both the Old and the New Testament as an all-consuming fire. I don't know if you saw the images of the wildfire that's been sweeping across Canada. And this is like 200-foot flames have been consuming everything in their path. That's a terrifying image of the power of fire. And yet that's how our God is described. He can consume anything in his path if he wants to. So, with that image in mind, can I just ask you, do we treat sin too lightly? Let me just give you a scenario here. Say you've had a week where you just don't feel that close to God. Do you go to a friend and say, oh, please, can you pray for me? I just feel like God's just walked away from me. He's just put a brick wall up. I cannot reach him. Or do you go to God and rant and rave at him and say, God, why have you left me? Why are you so far away? I need to feel your presence. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with either of those. The Psalms show how God loves it when we're honest with him. And yet, what I think should be our first port of call, I'm just asking, is your first port of call to see if there's any unconfessed sin in your life first? One of, this should be one of our first checks because as we've already seen, Sin is a barrier to God's presence. It cannot be in his presence. And so how can we be close to a holy God if we are leaving unconfessed sin? We're not bothering to deal with it. So I think that examining ourselves should be a regular part of our daily walk with him. It doesn't need to be a huge, big thing, but actually having that daily examining just helps us to keep in right relationship with him. We need to learn to humble ourselves and to admit when we sin. And we actually have a promise that when we do so, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, have you spotted how repentance is the key to that? It says at the beginning, if we confess our sins. But don't think that you have to work hard alone to keep a check on yourself. Who is it that helps us to recognize when we sin? And who is it that helps us to live lives that are worthy of our calling? The Holy Spirit, of course. The Holy Spirit speaks to our consciences. And then we have a choice. We can either listen to him and allow him to get to work in our hearts. Or we can ignore him. And we dull ourselves to his voice. And over time, if we keep doing that, we just won't really hear him anymore. In Romans, Paul gives us practical ways in which we can live in response to the gospel and to our call to be holy. Romans 12 says, Therefore, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Paul starts there with a therefore, And he also uses the phrase, in view of God's mercy. Those things are the triggers, but the response is down to us. So many of his instructions in that chapter are active. Offer, do not conform, be transformed, do not think of yourselves too highly, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Paul is showing us that the process of becoming holy does include us being responsible on a daily basis choosing to lay down our own agendas 
and offer ourselves up to God? Is that part of your daily walk with him? I think we can shy away from thinking about our own part in the path to holiness. We love accepting the absolute truth that we are justified through Jesus, but we choose to play down our own responsibility. Yet the Bible teaches us that holiness is possible, that we are, using Pete's favorite phrase, to trust and obey, which is absolutely right, and that we don't have to be failures in this area of holiness. But let's be honest, we all continue to sin. Why is that? I think often we can struggle to sin because we don't fully understand what Jesus has done for us. We know the basic facts very well, but we no longer allow them to seep into our very soul and change us from the inside out. We become blasé to the message because we're so used to it. Now, author and theologian Kevin DeYoung has written a book called The Hole in Our Holiness. And there's a very short sentence inside that which is really in your face, very frank and direct. I'm just going to say it, and I just want you to ponder it and think, is that true? Do I agree with that? He says, the hole in our holiness is that we don't really care about it. Ouch. But are we in danger of not thinking too much about our responsibility in the area of sin? Could we admit, actually, maybe we don't really care that much about it? I think the battle over sin can often be fought in our thinking. Jesus has already killed sin once and for all. But we're told in Romans 6.11 to count yourselves dead to sin. We need to take hold of it. Sometimes that means practically taking hold of the thoughts that you know lead you to sin and then replacing them with biblical truth. Romans 12.2 tells us that. We are all new creations in Christ, which is incredible, great news, but we need to fight to put off old habits. I really like this explanation from Jerry Bridges about the process. It's our habit to live for ourselves and not for God. That is our inherent sinful humanity. When we become Christians, we do not drop all this overnight. I know that there are testimonies of some Christians who... As soon as they become Christians, some of the habits they really struggled with are just gone, or when they get baptized in the Spirit. But actually, in fact, as Jerry says, we will spend the rest of our lives putting off these habits and putting on habits of holiness. That is our journey of discipleship. And that really reminds me of the, passion, the passage in Colossians 3. We're told to put to death, therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. This is another great chapter you might want to look at in your life groups. I can't read it all now, but we're told to put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. And as God's chosen people, here we're called holy and dearly loved again, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. It takes time and effort to change habits. But the key in understanding all of this is that we are in Christ. Part of our calling as children of God is to actively fight out to live the life that's been already won for us by Jesus. The good news is we do not fight on our own. As we've already said, it's the Holy Spirit who is our guide and our helper. He not only 
testifies with our spirits that we're children of God. But, thank goodness, he also says there's now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit works to transform us. Steve reminded me that it's Pentecost Sunday today. And just think of the transformation that happened in the disciples. As Jesus was on his way, on his journey towards the cross, they got fearful, they abandoned him, they were so confused even after he'd risen, they didn't quite understand everything. And yet, when the Holy Spirit descended upon them on that first Pentecost, wow, were they transformed. They then could not stop proclaiming the good news. And they were the means for the early church to start and the way that the gospel has been proclaimed throughout the world. The Holy Spirit has such transforming power in our lives. So looking back at that image of Isaiah being touched by the piece of coal, of course, it wasn't the coal that cleansed him. Only God can do that. But actually, it's a picture of a painful cleansing process that was necessary both to encourage him that he was the right man to be God's messenger, but it was also to make him ready for that commission. He was being set apart or being made holy. And we too need that cleansing process in our lives. Sometimes it will be painful. I think we can often view our struggles and our suffering as afflictions from the devil. And we can sometimes too quickly pray for them to be taken away. I just think sometimes God is using them to shape us for the next season, where he's taking us. As we saw last week when Pete was preaching, that God is sovereign over everything, even the things that we don't understand and the things that perhaps we find uncomfortable or don't like. Of course, us being made holy is not just for ourselves, for our own benefit. Our ultimate mission is to be his messengers to the world around us, to bring the good news that anyone who accepts Jesus and his salvation can stand before a holy God as holy and righteous themselves. As Isaiah cried out once he'd responded to God's love, to his grace, and to his cleansing, here am I, send me. And that's the kind of response that God wants from us too. Um, 1 Peter 2.9 says that we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are called to be holy, but not just as individuals. We're part of his body, the church, and we are called to live and to work together in unity to reveal God's holiness, his majesty, his glory, his utter awesomeness to the world around us. The seraphim are still crying out, holy, 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 Lord Almighty, and surely so must we.